You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. With Vladimir Putin's recent decision to invade Ukraine... Many talking heads have warned that we're on the verge of World War III. And of course, time will only tell these predictions will ever come true, and let's hope that it never does. But here in the United States, everyone seems to have an opinion as to how involved this country should be. You know, there are those who feel we need to be more aggressive towards Russia, those who think we're handling it about right, give or take a little bit, and those who feel we should just simply stay out of it. And I'm not here to preach which of those three options is the best, and it may be some combination of them. Really, that's for you to decide. But it does remind me of a story from World War I when a group of pacifists from the United States urged U.S. President Woodrow Wilson to not only stay out of the war, but to lead the way in what was known as continuous mediation. This is a concept in which the neutral nations would appeal to the belligerent nations, as they referred to back then, and work towards bringing peace. Continuous mediation was an idea that appealed to many and that included Mr. Model T himself, Henry Ford. Within days of learning the basic principles of continuous mediation, a plan was hatched in which Ford would charter a ship, gather up as many notables of the day as possible, and then set sail for Europe with the intention of bringing the deadly war to a halt. Today, I present to you the story of Henry Ford's peace ship. So let's jump on board that boat and go for a ride. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information It would make the most sense to start a story about World War I on the day that it officially began. That was July 28th of 1914. But I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm choosing the seemingly random day of January 13th of 1915. The major headline of that day's publication of the Indianapolis Star was, quote, 12,000 killed, 20,000 hurt by quake in Italy, historic edifices in Rome and Naples damaged. In that issue, there was only one article discussing what was going on in the European War. It was a 10-paragraph story titled, quote, Battles in West won by Germans, Allies evacuate trenches near Belgian coast, and attacks near Newport are repulsed with loss to French. Turks take Persian town. And that was all they wrote on the Great War. Well, almost. There was another one-paragraph article related to the war buried on page 4, column 3, fourth story down. Clearly not that important. Or written seriously, we can be fairly certain that some of the readers place the story in the, you know, you've got to be kidding category. I know that I certainly would have. 
Basically, the article told of how Frank Lindsay, who was a secretary of the Kokomo, Indiana Chamber of Commerce, he had penned a letter to President Woodrow Wilson requesting the endorsement of his plan to bring a quick end to the war. And Lindsay had come up with the idea while at a chamber luncheon a few days prior, so you know that it had to be good. The idea was very simple. Send U.S. representatives on a, quote, peace ship to Europe and then plead for peace. Then, just seven days later, Ohio Senator-elect and soon-to-be U.S. President Warren G. Harding made a similar proposal. You know, just load a ship up with American sailors and American-made products and send it overseas to spread the message of peace to the whole world. Fast forward another two months and we get another proposal for a peace ship. This time it came from Rosika Schwimmer, a 37-year-old Hungarian immigrant. While she's largely forgotten today, Schwimmer was a well-known suffragist, feminist, and most importantly to the story, a pacifist. She'd been working in London as both a reporter and as the press secretary of the International Women's Suffrage Alliance, but with the outbreak of the war, she was branded an enemy alien and she was forced to leave England. Since she was unable to return to Hungary, she opted to tour the United States and make a case for her continuous mediation peace proposal. Her plan called for ongoing negotiations between the belligerent nations and the neutral countries. And those neutral countries were Denmark, the Netherlands, Norway, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, and the United States. Schumer first met with President Wilson on September 18th of 1914, that's shortly after the war began, and presented him with a signed petition calling for the establishment of continuous mediation. Wilson was reported to have been cordial to the idea, but he refused to commit the United States to it. Frustrated, Schwimmer announced on March 13th of 1915, quote, I have become convinced that the United States will not call a conference of the neutral nations. She continued, The last resort then is a peace ship. Delegates shall be chosen at mass meetings throughout the country. They shall sail to Europe and stop at all neutral countries to carry delegates those nations have chosen to a gigantic peace conference. And she was serious. So on April 13th of 1915, more than 40 women, all members of the Women's Peace Party, they boarded the steamer Nordham in Hoboken, New Jersey, and they sailed off to the International Women's Conference at The Hague, which of course is in the Netherlands. The ship's flag simply displayed peace in large blue letters on a solid white background. Now, no one was fooling themselves into believing they could stop the war, but they were hoping to create a worldwide yearning for peace. So from April 28th through May 1st of 1915, an estimated 1,300 women from 12 countries came together and they drafted proposals to end the war. While the conference was deemed a success, its proposals were drowned out by the bigger news on May 7th, that of the sinking of the Lusitania by a German U-boat killing 1,198 passengers and crew. This shifted public opinion within the United States about the war and of course, many feared being drawn into the European conflict. One of these people was Henry Ford. The introduction of the Model T on October 1st of 1908 had made him an incredibly wealthy man. At the time of his death in 1947, and this is just an estimate, Ford's net worth would equate to nearly $200 billion in today's dollars. 
Ford hated war and he always considered himself to be a pacifist. He was appalled by what was happening in Europe and he was desperate to keep the United States out of the conflict. So he decided to put his money where his mouth was. On September 5th of 1915, Ford announced that he was setting aside $1 million, that's nearly $28 million today, he was setting aside $1 million to campaign for peace. Three days later, he increased his peace fund endowment to $10 million. So let's do some simple math. Lots of money plus a campaign for world peace equals, you ready, Rosika Schwimmer. She had found the perfect substitute for Woodrow Wilson. You know, if she couldn't get the president to sign on for her plan of continuous mediation, maybe she could get Ford to do so instead. So Schwimmer immediately penned the letter, and soon she had an appointment to meet with Henry Ford. In November 1915, a company car pulled up to the Ten Eyck House on Ford's Fairlane Estate in Dearborn, Michigan. Two guests stepped out of the vehicle. Of course, Rosika Schwimmer was one of them, and the other was Louis P. Lochner. At the time, Lochner was the executive director of the Emergency Peace Federation, and later on he'd become a Pulitzer Prize winner for his writing. Now, once they're inside, there was the usual greetings, and of course, there was a discussion of Schwimmer's proposal. Yet it wasn't long before the two men headed off to Ford's nearby experimental tractor shop, while Schwimmer remained behind to discuss her proposal with Henry's wife, Clara. Now, as a little side note, uh, it's unclear if Ford knew that Rosika was Jewish, but she did recall years later that he had blamed the World War on, quote, international Jews. And of course, uh, Jews were his scapegoat for just about everything that was wrong in the world. And while Schwimmer could have easily argued with Ford over that Jewish remark, she opted to bite her lip this time and allow the meeting to continue. She really needed his support. Now, Ford did have a legitimate reason to head off to the tractor shop without the women. You see, he wished to question Lochner without Schwimmer listening in. Quote, what do you think of Madame Schwimmer's proposal? Is it practical? How much will it cost to maintain a neutral commission in Europe? Lochner expressed approval for her plan, but he did add that Ford should meet with President Wilson first to obtain his approval before, you know, Ford went any further. Meanwhile, back at the Tenite, Clara and Rosika discussed the proposal. Schumer added that she had a meeting scheduled for November 26th with the president, and it would be of great help if the White House could be bombarded with telegrams supporting her position. And of course, telegrams were crazy expensive back then. By the end of the meeting, both Henry and Clara were convinced. He pledged $10,000, that's over $270,000 today. Ford pledged $10,000 to cover the cost of the telegrams alone. Plus, he agreed to support Schwimmer's plan for continuous mediation. After the meeting ended, Schwimmer left for New York, and Ford and Lochner agreed to meet up with her there the very next day. So on November 21st, Ford had lunch with Lochner and Schwimmer at the Hotel McAlpin in Manhattan. At some point during the discussion, Lochner half facetiously suggested, quote, why not a special ship to take the delegates over? And ever the promoter, Ford just loved the idea. You see, the use of a ship was flamboyant. It was over the top. It was an approach that was certain to bring much-needed attention to their cause. Two days later, Ford was in a meeting with Wilson, urging him to assemble a group of representatives from neutral nations who would work towards stopping the bloodshed in Europe. 
While approving of the concept, Wilson was non-committal. He preferred to keep his options open, you know, should a better idea come along. But with no objection from the president, Henry Ford decided to go it alone. He held a press conference the next day and revealed his plan to the world. Quote, I want to get those boys out of the trenches by Christmas. In sending the ship, we'll establish a clearinghouse at some port in Holland or Scandinavia where all the nations at war can be brought together and peace proposals made. He continued, We are not ready to announce definite plans. The ship is on its way to New York. When it arrives, the arrangements will be completed and I will be ready to say who will go on the expedition and who will be in charge. I do not know yet whether I will go or not. I will give my last penny for the purpose of bringing peace and will borrow money if necessary. I can still make a living at any time. I want to get these boys out of the trenches by Christmas. Note that Christmas is just four weeks away. He also said, Our ship will be armed with the longest gun in the world, the Marconi. It will let the world know we are bound for peace and will keep the world in touch with the movement. Ford may have been the face of this endeavor, but it was really Rosika Schwimmer who was working behind the scenes to pull the whole thing together. Lochner's role, on the other hand, would be relegated to that of Ford's assistant. Of course, the first thing needed for any voyage is a ship. So arrangements were made with the Scandinavian-American line to use their steamer, the Oscar II. And I have to say, while the image of the SS Minnow from Gilligan's Island fame initially ran through my head, and I'm thinking, you know, a three-hour cruise here, the Oscar II really was a grand ship. It was around 60% of the length of the Titanic, although it was not nearly as immense, and it featured rooms ranging from luxurious first-class cabins all the way down to spacious, well-ventilated third-class rooms. Then, an entire room at the Biltmore Hotel was rented to set up operations for the trip. Ford's staff of clerks, managers, and stenographers worked to send out the invitations, and they also had to deal with the sudden deluge of telegrams, mail, and of course, visitors. Now, the invited guests were told to prepare for a six-week trip, which could be extended if deemed necessary. From the outset, it was clear that no representative of the United States government would be participating. You see, to do so would imply an official endorsement by the U.S., which they couldn't do. Yet they didn't exclude elected officials on both the state and the local levels. So invitations were sent out to every governor, every lieutenant governor, to college presidents, and basically every notable of the day, encouraging them to hop aboard the peace ship. Unfortunately, the overall response was not what the planners had hoped for. Nearly all the replies were in the negative. And here's just a small sampling of them. From New Jersey Governor James Fielder, quote, Invitation declined. Believe that efforts for peace by citizens of neutral nations as individuals would be considered meddlesome. And then there's this one from Alabama Governor Charles Henderson, quote, Prolonged absence from the state would necessarily prevent my acceptance. The spirit of Alabama's two and one-half million citizens is with you and wish your success in behalf of suffering humanity. Next up is Mississippi Governor Earl Brewer, quote, Sorry, can't get off to accept your invitation. Congratulations on great work you're undertaking. If you succeed, you'll have accomplished more for humanity and the world than all the generals that have fought in all the wars. Now, I can go on and on. I had a whole bunch of these, but uh, you get the idea. Yet Ford did announce that three prominent people had accepted. 
They were future Nobel Prize winner Jane Addams, inventor Thomas Edison, and department store magnate John Wanamaker. But Ford may have jumped the gun a bit here because none would actually sail on the ship. The latter two simply declined Ford's invitation. Jane Addams, now she had planned on going, but unfortunately illness prevented her from traveling. While the vast majority of the notables of the day declined the invitation, many others did express interest in going. So many, in fact, that Ford's staff began to book them on a second ship. That was the Frederick 8. As departure day approached, Basil Peel of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, had a really bad vision, and they wanted Ford to know about it. Quote, I dreamed I saw the pea ship in mid-ocean and a German submarine approaching. Suddenly there was a terrific explosion and the pea ship began sinking. I saw a wireless operator call for help. An English battleship appeared. The people of the sinking boat cried for aid, but the commander of the battleship refused it, and the whole party was lost. Well, Ford must have had similar thoughts because he had a new will drawn up that detailed the distribution of his fortune, and it also explained how his business affairs are to be handled should he not return. Saturday, December 4th, 1915 was a cold, raw day as a crowd estimated at 15,000 people gathered on a dock in Hoboken, New Jersey to witness the launch of Ford's peace ship. With less than two weeks of planning, there was a general sense of pandemonium in the air. You see, few seemed to know what was going on and even fewer knew what they should be doing or even where they should be going. Two caged squirrels were delivered to the ship, and one of them was addressed to the, quote, good ship Nutty. A steward was informed that one of those squirrels was Mr. Ford's pet, and he proceeded to deliver it directly to his stateroom, and he left it on a table there. Finally, at 1.15 p.m., a car arrived with Mr. and Mrs. Ford inside. As the 52-year-old Ford emerged from the vehicle, the crowd cheered as if he was being crowned king. Lloyd M. Bingham, a New York theatrical manager, announced, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, I take great pleasure in presenting to you Mr. Henry Ford. Three cheers for Mr. Ford. Ford appeared uneasy with all the sudden attention, so he simply smiled and attempted to hide behind the stanchion. But Bingham continued, Mr. Ford wishes to thank you individually and collectively for coming here to wish him Godspeed. The Oscar II set sail at 3.15 p.m., and from the ship's deck, Ford tossed a bouquet of roses down to his weeping wife. Unfortunately, someone else grabbed them, and she just got one of the roses. As the ship moved away from the dock, a band played their recent hit song, I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier. And I do have a copy of that, and if I remember, I'll play it at the end of the podcast. And that's mainly because it's really scratchy to listen to. Then, suddenly, a man jumped from the dock into the icy waters of the Hudson River, and he attempted to swim towards the quickly receding ship. A tugboat did come to rescue the man, and he was later identified as Urban Ledoux, although he wished to be referred to as Mr. Zero, and he later stated that he was, quote, swimming to reach public opinion. Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from the sponsors of this podcast, but when we return, you'll learn what happened when they finally arrived in Europe, the problems they ran into when trying to cross Germany, and of course, what effect the peace mission had on the outcome of the war. So I'll see you on the flip side. 
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Welcome back. Just prior to the break, Henry Ford and his peace ship had just left the dock in Hoboken, New Jersey, and they were on their way to Europe. We pick up the story there. Now, different sources provided varying totals as to how many passengers were on board. The general total was somewhere between 140 and 165 people. But I have to tell you, they weren't all peace advocates. Just roughly 60 to 65 were guests of Mr. Ford, 45 to 55 were members of the press, there were two or three motion picture cameramen there to film it, and approximately 20 were on Ford's personal staff. So just who were these advocates? Well, those on board who were peace delegates were typically described as being pacifists, suffragists, socialists, lecturers, or, you know, some combination of these. Then you add in a little sprinkling of teachers, government officials, and ministers. But there really was a glaring absence of society. You know, farmers, scientists, labor officials, and excluding Ford, they were no businessmen. For the first few days of the trip, Ford mingled among the crowd, and uh, he spoke at both a morning and afternoon news conference each day, and that provided plenty of meat for the reporter's stories. Yet, it was reported that he seemed most comfortable down in the ship's engine room, which kind of makes sense for a guy who makes cars. Once the ship was out in open water, messages began to be sent back to shore via the Marconi, you know, telegraph signals sent over the radio waves. And the idea was really simple. Now that the peace ship had captured the world's attention, mainly through the newspapers, they planned to bombard their audience with wireless messages. And the first message, the first most important message sent was from Ford to his wife. And she was still at the Biltmore Hotel. And part of that message simply read, everything is splendid. This was followed by Reverend Charles Aiket, and he was on board and he delivered his 2,000-word Sunday sermon and get this, it was transmitted in 50-word installments, and it cost Ford over $1,000. That's roughly $28,000 today to transmit. On Monday, December 6th, Ford sent the following message to Congress, quote, We the citizens of the United States, now sailing to Europe on the steamship Oscar II, with the serious purpose to deliver the men from the trenches and the women from their suffering and agonies, 
and restore the peace of the world upon an honorable and just basis, which will stop the mad race of competitive armament, do hereby earnestly petition and entreat you to give the peace mission your support and encouragement. And that's the end of the quote. Then this was followed by messages to all of the belligerent countries, and it concludes, quote, Let the army stand still where they are so the soldiers may be delivered back from another bitter winter in the trenches and sent back to their labors and their firesides. As there is no other way to end the war except by mediation and discussion, why waste one more precious human life? And it concludes, For the sake of humanity, respectfully yours, Henry Ford and 165 representatives of the people of the United States of America. And that was it. The war was over. That's all that was needed. Just say those words and boom, it was over. No, not really. Now, I should mention these words were not written by Henry Ford. Almost all that was sent out by him was really written by his staff of writers. Initially, things seemed to be going really well aboard the peace ship, but that feeling would soon drastically change. After dinner on Tuesday, there was a meeting of all the delegates where magazine publisher S.S. McClure read extracts from President Wilson's State of the Union speech, and he had delivered it to Congress that same exact day. McClure had obtained an advanced copy of the speech before sailing, and in it, Wilson discussed the need for the United States to prepare for war, you know, should the United States be drawn into the European conflict. What McClure and others understood and agreed with Wilson's plea for preparedness, there were many others aboard that disagreed. And from this day forward, the expedition would be divided into two camps. There were those in favor of preparedness, those are the McClurites, and those who were against it, those are the anti-McClurites. A motion was made to pass a resolution condemning Wilson's preparedness policy, but the McClurites argued that this would be unpatriotic. You know, you need to support your country. So it was ultimately decided to shelve the resolution for five days, and that would give everyone some time to reflect on it. But the delay made no difference. That's because five days later, the resolution still passed, but more than a dozen delegates refused to sign on. In fact, some even threatened to leave the peace ship once they arrived in Europe. And the headlines back home weren't helping their cause either. They screamed, mutiny on board, or war over peace plan splits Ford pilgrims, or peace ship jarred by Wilson message. You get the idea. And there was another potential problem brewing. That was Rosika Schwimmer. You see, she was basically in charge of the entire peace mission, but she was difficult to work with and incredibly secretive. Now, Schwimmer insists that she had documents proving that the belligerent nations were ready to mediate. But she stubbornly refused to share those details with anyone. Nobody could see them. And in fact, some people were beginning to wonder if those documents existed at all. After nearly two weeks at sea, the Oscar II was about to enter the North Sea, but it was forced to stop in Kirkwall, Scotland, so that the British could search the ship for weapons and ammunition. None were found, although wrapped Christmas gifts that had been brought along for the children of Scandinavia, and this is reported to have been in the thousands of gifts, they were ripped open and searched. Now, I can't confirm this, but it was in several different articles, and that is the only thing that was confiscated from the ship was dried prunes. They had a lot of dried prunes on board because there were a number of vegetarians. Anyway, after two days, the peace ship was on its way to its first planned stop. That was Christiana, Norway, uh, which today we know as Oslo. From there, they would head to Sweden, then to Denmark, 
and their final destination was the Hague. There, in the Hague, they intended to set up a permanent home for what they called the Neutral Conference for Continuous Mediation. And as the Ford Party moved from country to country, they would select delegates or representatives of each country, and they would take permanent seats at the conference. Now keep in mind, the North Sea was an incredibly dangerous place to sail during the war. Submarines were on the prowl, and its waters had become a graveyard to a great many ships. So the Oscar II proceeded cautiously with its side lights burning and its Danish flag brightly illuminated so no one could mistake it for an enemy ship. On December 13th, the following message was sent by wireless to all the ruling monarchs, quote, Sir, we come in this time of trouble not to add to your burdens, but to help lift them. Not to consider which nations are most to blame for the disaster that has befallen Europe, but to end the strife. Not to intrude ourselves upon your national life and national ideas, but rather with an earnest desire to understand them and a heartfelt wish to aid in realizing them. It continues, Enough blood has been shed, enough agony endured, and enough destruction wrought. The time has come to stop the bloodshed, to save the people from further slaughter, and the civilization of the world from anarchy and ruin. Has not war been tried enough in 16 months of fighting? It concludes, for the sake of humanity, Henry Ford. Finally, on December 18th of 1915, the peace ship docked in Christiania. Everyone aboard expected a huge welcome, you know, similar to what they experienced when they left the dock in New Jersey. But instead, the pier was deserted. There was no one there. And while meetings and discussions between the peace pilgrims and the Norwegians took place over the next few days, their response could be described as, I guess, lackluster at best. You see, Norway was a nation preparing for war with a large standing army and universal conscription. An unnamed high-ranking Norwegian government official summarized their position this way, quote, Madam Schumann visited me twice last spring and endeavored to obtain action toward a peace conference by the Norwegian government. It would have been useless then, and it's just as useless now. He added, If Mr. Ford's party had credentials from the American government, the whole complexion of the matter would be changed. But the conversations must pass between the three Scandinavian governments before there can be any action or any change in the official attitude. The time is not ripe for peace. Interference is not wanted now. Norway can give no official recognition of any conference planned by the Ford party. One person who was notably absent from all the events in Norway was Henry Ford himself. You see, he was confined to his room at the Grand Hotel suffering from the flu, and he wasn't alone. Many aboard the Oscar II were suffering from varying degrees of the influenza, and that happened long before they ever reached shore. And I should mention Rosika Schwimmer was one of those people. But none paid the price more than Lloyd Bingham. He was the man who stood at the ship's rails back in Hoboken, you know, announcing Ford's arrival. By the time the peace ship arrived in Norway, Bingham was already in a coma and needed to be carried off the ship on a stretcher. Sadly, he would not survive. And with each passing day, Ford became noticeably more ill. Late in the evening on December 23rd, Ford and his friend, that's Reverend Samuel Marquis, they secretly slipped out of the hotel and they took a train to Bergen. There, they, along with the body of Lloyd Bingham, 
boarded the steamer Bergensfjord the following day and sailed off for New York. Around the same time that Ford was leaving, 11 railway cars departed Christiania and they headed east to Stockholm, Sweden. After a 16-hour ride, just as the train was approaching its final destination, a statement was read to the members of the party that Ford had been compelled to leave on the advice of his physician. The peace ship, or should we now say the peace train, had lost its leader. Could they continue without him? They really had no choice. They had to. The reception that the peace mission received from the Swedish was completely opposite to the cold shoulder that they received in Norway. The Swedes were just far more enthusiastic. In fact, things went so well that Stockholm Chief Magistrate Carl Linhagen asked the group to consider establishing his city instead of The Hague as the permanent home of the Neutral Conference for Continuous Mediation. But things were not so peaceful among the members of the peace mission itself. With Ford absent, the expedition's leaders made a power grab and they undemocratically selected a governing committee. This caused another major fracture in the group, one from which it would never recover. In particular, Inez Boisevain, who was a leading suffragist and one of the more prominent members of the peace mission, she had just had enough of this nonsense, so she just quit and went back home. Next, on Thursday, December 30th, the peace party boarded a special train and they headed southwest to Copenhagen, Denmark. While the Danes were cordial, a recently passed law forbid foreigners from holding public meetings within their country. But the delegates found an easy way around this restriction. They simply held well-attended private meetings. And with one of the world's richest men paying for everything, they were able to do a lot of partying and a lot of purchasing of gifts. But their free ride was about to come to an end. It was announced on January 3, 1916, while they were still in Copenhagen, that the peace expedition would disband at The Hague on January 12th. Of course, Ford did agree to pay their passage home, and only those who had permanent seats at the peace conference would be able to stay behind. But before they parted, the group had one really big problem. They needed to get to The Hague, and there were only two ways to get there. The first was via the North Sea, which meant going through mine-infested waters and traveling dangerously close to Germany. There was no ship large enough to carry the entire group, that was willing to take that risk and possibly have their ship sunk. So their only other option was to take a train through Germany, and that's something that no tourist group had been able to do since the outbreak of the war. Yet somehow they did get permission to travel by rail, but it came with several strict stipulations. First, no one in the party could touch German soil, which meant that all doors on the train had to be kept locked at all times. Second, no written, typewritten, or printed papers were allowed. And lastly, all cameras, opera glasses, or binoculars, and gold currency had to be left behind. Now, the gold coins could be exchanged for paper money, but the bulk of these prohibited items were simply gathered up and shipped from Copenhagen back to the United States. The entire trip through Germany was made in darkness, and this was done on purpose to prevent the passengers from seeing anything related to the war. Surprisingly, only one guard was assigned to the train, and he quickly relaxed the rules and fraternized with the passengers. So at each train stop, the peace advocates were able to get off the train and walk around the platform. Then, upon crossing the border into the Netherlands, 
everyone transferred to a Dutch train and they arrived in The Hague at noon on January 8th. The Peace Council held its first meeting the next day with representatives of Denmark, Holland, Norway, Sweden, and the United States all present. Yet really this was nothing special to the Dutch people. And that's because nearly 60 similar peace groups were operating within the country at that very moment, and there were new ones continuously popping up. This really was just, you know, old hat to them. Five Americans were elected, along with the delegates already chosen from the other countries, to serve as permanent members of the peace board. Each member was to be paid for their services, and Ford picked up the bill for the entire operation. That was estimated to be approximately $500,000 annually, which is about $13.8 million today. Louis Lochner, who had taken a back seat to Rosika Schwimmer up until now, was placed in charge of the entire kit and caboodle. And then, as planned, beginning on January 10th, the group began to disband and head home. This included Rosika Schwimmer, who, under pressure being fired, resigned from the peace mission. In the end, the general consensus was that Ford's peace ship was a total failure. But really, that isn't quite true. Those who served on the permanent board worked diligently to bring an end to the war, although within a few months, the number of delegates was reduced from five to two people from each nation. First, they appealed to the neutral nations to sign on to their concept of continuous mediation, and bills to do so were introduced into the parliaments of four of the neutral nations, although none were passed. And many of the principles that they formalized were decades later incorporated into the United Nations Charter, although you really can't prove that. And I did check these. This included the right of self-determination by people, economic freedom, peaceful settlement of all disputes, and the creation of a World Congress to deal with issues as they came up. On January 3rd, 1917, now keep in mind the uh, peace ship launched on December 4th of 1915, Ford requested that Louis Lochner return immediately to the United States. Lochner then accompanied Ford to two meetings with President Wilson. Then, on January 22nd, Wilson gave his historic speech in which he urged the warring nations to establish peace without victory. So Ford concluded that the federal government was doing all that it could to establish peace, and there was no need for his actions anymore. On February 7th, Ford told Lochner to shut down the European peace operation. Of course, this was followed on April 2nd when President Wilson asked Congress for a declaration of war against Germany, and that was granted four days later. The total cost of Ford's peace adventure has never been established. Estimates vary wildly, and I mean wildly. Anywhere from a low of $500,000 to a high of $5 million. That's between $13.8 and $138 million adjusted for inflation. Even the cost for the wireless telegraphy from the Oscar II range from a low of $10,000 to a high of $50,000. That's between $277,000 and $1.38 million today, and that's just to communicate with the shore. As for the ship itself, it was sold in 1933 for $67,500. That's nearly $1.5 million a day, and it was scrapped. Ford and the members of his expedition were largely ridiculed by the American press back then, but it was clear that they had hoped to bring an end to the World War before the United States was dragged into the conflict. 
1965, 78-year-old Louis Lochner reflected back on the peace ship adventure. Quote, Well, the peace ship was a stunt, but the welfare of humanity was in our thoughts. We felt that somebody ought to do something to end the war, and we did our best. Maybe it all came to nothing in the end, but who knows? Perhaps a neutral conference or continuous mediation germinated the idea which grew long after into the United Nations. But I think that Henry Ford summed it up best, quote, I wanted to see peace. I at least tried to bring it about. Most men did not even try. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Well, that brings another episode to a close. I've had the 1967 book, The Odyssey of Henry Ford and the Great Peace Ship, which was written by Bernard Hershey uh, for more than a decade, maybe even closer to 15 years now. And it's been in the cabinet on my nightstand ever since. And I've attempted to read it several times over the years, but I just kept putting it aside because, honestly, I prefer to read and research stories that are just far more obscure. But I picked the book up once again shortly before we left for our Grand Canyon trip, and this time I forced myself to get through it. And I must say the book is incredibly well written, but when I was done reading it, I felt it was a bit unbalanced because he wrote it from the point of view of being a reporter aboard the peace ship. So I decided to research the story further, and in doing so, I had a lot of information. So I've left out a lot of detail as I told the story, and that's simply to keep it at a reasonable length. I could have delved into Rosika Schumann's role in greater detail or Henry Ford's anti-Semitic stance, but then I would have ended up writing an entire book if I had done so. On another topic, uh, once or twice a year, I sit down to calculate the total downloads for this podcast. And this means going back to the first episode that I released back in January of 2008. And I've been on different platforms over the years. So I keep a spreadsheet that has the totals of all the old uh, with the new. And I'm pleased to announce that the Useless Information Podcast has had over 5 million downloads to date. I never, ever thought I would see that. I have to admit that is really, really great news, but there is a downside to this, and that is it's clear that the download rate is slowing down after so many years of continual growth. And I know I've asked this before, and I may sound like a broken record here, but anything you can do to spread the word about the podcast, it would be greatly, greatly appreciated. I should also mention that Facebook is giving up their podcast feeds effective June 3rd of 2022. So if that's how you get this podcast, you need to go somewhere else. I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through whatever your favorite podcast service is. That could be Apple, Spotify, Google, and I don't know, there's a seemingly endless uh, number of choices out there. Whatever your favorite is, uh, try and subscribe that way. Anyway, if you'd like to contact me about this episode, the podcast itself, the website, or whatever, you can do so through my email at steve at uselessinformation.org. That's steve at uselessinformation.org. Of course, you can use Facebook Messenger or you can use the contact form on my website. And, as promised, I'll play the song I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier at the very end. The music for this anti-war song was written by Al Piantadosi, and the lyrics were by Alfred Bryan. It was recorded by the Peerless Quartet in December 1914, and went to number one on the U.S. charts in March and April of 1915. It sold an estimated 650,000 copies at the time. Of course, the copyright on the song has since expired, so I'll play the Peerless Quartet version for you. Anyway, I'll sign off here, and if you want to listen to the song, just let the episode keep playing. So thanks for listening, and take care, everyone. Bye.
may never return again. Ten million mothers' hearts must break for the world who died in vain. Heads bowed down in sorrow in her lonely years. I heard a mother murmur through her tears. I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. I brought him up to be my pride and joy. I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast.